0: I'm also going to do the reading, so if you can turn to 1 Thessalonians 3, give everyone a few minutes to get that up, first I'm going to read the whole 1 Thessalonians 3, therefore when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish so that we may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints.
1: Well, as I was pondering uh, and praying this week about what I should preach on the Sunday, the question came to my mind, what can I say to a church that's entering a new year without a pastor? As I thought about this, My mind went to a beautiful prayer that Paul prayed for a church that he loved deeply and longed intensely to be with, but for various reasons, he could not visit them personally. And Paul in his prayer, and my simple and humanly impossible goal this morning in this message is that we would be devoted to one another in prayer more this year. And this is my goal because this is what Paul calls us to this morning. And I want us to be challenged by Paul to be a praying people. More specifically, that we would be devoted to one another in prayer. Because as Paul's going to demonstrate, prayerlessness towards one another is a sign of a more serious and more fundamental problem. And so the message that we're going to hear from Paul this morning could be summed up in this way. The measure of our praying for one another is the measure Of our love for one another. And if the church of God is to be characterized by love for one another, then it's also to be characterized by its praying for one another. And so I've titled my sermon this morning, Be devoted to one another in prayer. Be devoted to one another, that's the love side of it. In prayer, that's the praying side of it. And in our text this morning in 1 Thessalonians 3 9 to 13, This text is really especially revealing uh, in this portrayal of Paul's deepest emotions for the church. His profound love and concern for the church so clearly uh, arises from this prayer and the context from which it springs. So I want to look at the context first. I want us to see the heart that this prayer arises from. This is not just a prayer that Paul drops in thoughtlessly or out of convention but it's a prayer that arises from a deep love and passion for the church. So I want us to note three things from the context. So it's a it's a three point sermon plus a three point sermon plus a point in the middle. But firstly, the first point of the first three points. Um, firstly, I want us to notice that Paul's prayer arises from an intense longing to be together. Paul writes in one Thessalonians two thirteen. But since we were Horn away from you, brothers and sisters, for a short time, in person but not in heart, we endeavoured the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. Then again in one Thessalonians chapter three, verses one to two and five. Paul writes, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy our brother. Sorry, my poor eyesight, I can't see my see the text. That's better. We sent Timothy our brother and God's co worker in the gospel of Christ. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. So here's a Christian who is so committed to the well-being of other Christians, especially new Christians, that he's simply burning up inside to be with them, to help them, to nurture them, to, to stabilize them, to, to establish an adequate foundation for them. And so small wonder that he devotes himself to praying for them when he cannot be with them personally. And this is typical for Paul. This is not a commitment to professionalism that drove Paul, but a commitment to people. Paul is a passionate man, a man who's deeply involved in the lives of real people. And this is why Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 11, 28 to 29, And apart from all the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall? And I'm not indignant. You see, this is not someone who's more concerned about ideas than individuals, popularity than people, career than community. Nor is this man's ministry designed first and foremost to produce ideas and institutions, books and buildings, marketing strategies and ministries, but to serve the people of God. And it's to this thing that Paul is passionately committed. And so it's this passion that shapes Paul's prayers on their behalf. But then secondly, not, does, not only does Paul want to be with them, but he wants to be with them so he can do them good. And so that's the second thing we see about Paul's prayer. arises from a passion that seeks the good of others. Listen again to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1-5. He says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, We sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in the faith so that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter Had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So so here's a man whose deep affection for these believers, these recent converts, ensures that they will not serve to feed his ego, to establish his identity, to, to give him a sense of importance, or to satisfy his longing for fulfillment in ministry. Paul is in agony out of his concern for their good. And he wants to be assured that they are standing firm under the persecution they are facing. He wants to strengthen them and encourage them in the faith so that they will not be unsettled by trials. In short, Paul doesn't just want to be with them. He wants to be with them for their good. In the Christian view of service, self-fulfillment must never become the controlling issue. The issue is service. Service for real people. The question is, how can I be most useful? Not how can I feel most useful? The goal is, how can I best serve other people for their good and for God's glory? Not how can I feel comfortable and appreciated and fulfilled while engaging in some form of acceptable Christian ministry. As we'll see, this is not to deny that Christians may derive and experience much joy and happiness and fulfillment from work that's honestly offered to God. But the focus of our attention must not be on our own subjective experience of joy. Instead, we are to pursue our joy in the service of others to the glory of God. We'll come back to that in a moment. So Paul's prayer arises from this passionate longing to be with the church and he wants to be with the church so he can do it some good. And now lastly, we see that Paul's prayer then arises from a delight when he sees them doing well, when he sees them growing in Christ. So already in the first chapter, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 to 3, he says we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly re you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul was referring to his memory of them during the brief time uh, that he was with them, and the interval between being with them And his departure awakened all sorts of worries about how the Thessalonian believers would fear in the long run. And so for this reason, Paul commissioned Timothy to go and find out how they are doing. And now in chapter 3, he's able to add these words. Ah, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and you long to see us, even as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers and sisters, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. You see, for Paul, every report of growth in the fundamentals, in faith, and hope, and love, becomes an occasion for great rejoicing for Paul. And so once again, we find plenty of evidence that Paul's prayer arises from an unaffected delight in the reports that he's hearing that these Thessalonian believers are pressing on in the Christian way. To put it simply, Paul's prayer is a product of his genuine love for people. You see, his his, his unaffected fervency is not some sort of whipped up emotionalism, but it's the overflow of his love for his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that this means then if we are to improve our praying for one another, we need to strengthen our loving as a church. And as we grow in love as a church, we will grow in intercessory prayer for one another. So exactly then how do the people of God, in this case, uh, those at Thessalonica, And those at South Barwon Christian Reformed Church. How do they feature in Paul's prayer for them? Well, there are four themes that reveal Paul's deep love for his brothers and sisters in Christ as he prays for them. Four themes. One, thanksgiving. And three, prayer requests. That I want to encourage us to make a part of our prayer life as we pray for our church. So firstly, the thanksgiving, and it's a thanksgiving for joy. As as is usually the case with Paul, Paul begins his prayer on a note of thanksgiving, and it's a thanksgiving for joy. Even though Paul began his letter with a thanksgiving to God for the Thessalonians, in chapter 1 verses 2 to 3, his unabashed delight in the evidence of their spiritual growth in Christ provides Another occasion for an outburst of joy, if possible, with still greater exuberance. Verse 9, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy we feel for your sake before God? Note two distinctive features of this lavish thanksgiving. Firstly, note there Paul's thanksgiving for the Thessalonians. And although the the thanksgiving is not addressed to the Thessalonians, but rather it's addressed to to God for the Thessalonians, it's nevertheless framed in such a way as to encourage them. He encourages Christians by thanking God for his grace in their lives. And in his thanksgiving, he makes mention of their spiritual growth, thereby encouraging them. And at the same time, he insists that it's God who is to be thanked, thereby humbling them. And so there's no way that these believers could thoughtfully listen to Paul and then smugly pat themselves on the back. God and God alone is to be thanked for the signs of grace in their lives. Yet neither can they help but feel encouraged to learn that the apostle himself has observed the evidence of the work of God in their lives and rejoices because of it. So I wonder how much would our church be transformed if each of us made it a practice to thank God for each other and then tell each other what we have thanked God for? You know Bob I 'm so thankful to God for the faithfulness that you display in your task as a church welcomer. I can't help but notice the way that you, you greet everyone by name, even the smallest child, and that you arrive early and you go out of your way to make everyone feel welcome at our church. You know, I really thank God for your ministry. See, so what we need is a prayer life that thanks God for the people of God and then tells people what we thank God for. So firstly, he thanks God for the Thessalonians. Then, secondly, note that Paul also thanks God for his own joy. Paul's thankfulness to God for the Thessalonians is in some measure, Paul's thankfulness to God for his greatest source of joy. The depth of Paul's delight and the depth of happiness and joy in Paul's thankfulness is highlighted by the following remarkable wording of verse 9. Look again with me at at verse 9, and in a moment see the bit that's highlighted. Paul says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, and here it comes, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? So what does Paul mean by thanking God for his own joy? Isn't that rather self-centered? Isn't Paul saying that the Thessalonians are only important to him uh, so long as they make him happy? Well, of course, that would certainly be to misread Paul. But on the other hand, there is a sense in which Paul does seek his own joy, but he seeks it in the salvation and the edification and the spiritual growth of the church. The edification and the spiritual growth of his people was the joy and the passion of his life. And so if I take my wife out for our anniversary, which I did uh, recently for our 25th anniversary, and she says to me, thank you so much for this lovely evening. Uh, You've made me so happy. And I say to her, "Uh, don't thank me. It's just my duty as a husband. I I read it in some book on marriage and being a good husband, some James Dobson guy or something. Is she going to think that she truly has my love uh, and my affection? Well, no. But if she says to me, thank you so much for this lovely evening. Uh, You've made me so happy. I feel really loved. And I say to her, nothing would give me greater joy than to be here with you on this special evening. Am I being self-centered? Well, no. Why? Why? Because I'm not seeking my joy in myself, but I'm seeking it in the joy and happiness of my wife. And this is how Paul feels about the church. Nothing makes him happier. Nothing gives him more joy than to see them growing in the grace of God. This, This is a man who says in effect, I love you so much that when I see the grace of God at work in your life, I'm utterly delighted. Indeed, your spiritual growth gives me so much joy in the presence of God that I'm profoundly indebted to you. In fact, I'm empowered all the more to thank God for each of you. It is indeed in the spirit that Paul tells his readers, indeed, you are our glory and our joy. Paul is never a mere professional. He's passionately, passionately involved in the lives of his people. And so Paul is thankful for the joy that he receives as a result of the spiritual growth of the church. Well, Paul's thanksgiving now leads into three passionate petitions for the people of God. So here's my three-point sermon. Only three points today. And the first is found in verses 10 to 11. And he prays that they might be supplied in faith. That they might be supplied in faith. Verse 10, and we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And then he directs his prayer to God in verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Briefly note two things, still one point, but two things. Firstly, I want you to note the consistency of Paul's prayer. Notice there he says, we pray for you earnestly, most earnestly, night and day. He means that in his regular times of prayer, day and night, morning and evening, he remembers the Thessalonians before God. And so there's two lessons to learn. The importance of frequent, regular, daily times of prayer. And secondly, the importance of remembering each other when we set out to pray. As the Puritan Matthew Henry says, he says he prayed for them night and day, evening and morning, or very frequently, in the midst of the busyness of the day or the slumber of the night, lifting up his heart to God in prayer. Thus, we should pray always. So the consistency of Paul's prayer. Now, secondly, note the content of his prayer. The content of Paul's prayer as he prays for them, as he remembers them night and day, morning and evening, is that he might see them again, so that he might supply what is lacking in their faith. You see, Paul was with them such a short time that he did not have the opportunity to establish them firmly in the Scriptures. And now he longs to see them again for no other reason Than to strengthen their faith. And what's remarkable about this petition is not only the light that it sheds uh, on what is important for Paul when he prays, but I hope you also noticed the way that Paul mingles intercessory prayer with his own service when he prays. Do you notice that he doesn't simply pray? that the faith of the Thessalonians would be strengthened and and then leave them to wonder how that's going to happen. Rather, he then prays that he himself might do that. You see, for Paul, prayer is not a substitute for Christian service. It It is the power that energizes it. And apparently, Paul can't pray long for Christians without longing to see them and serve them. And so this is a mindset that needs to be in each of us. We will not be able to minister to every church member personally for whom we ought to be praying. But the mindset of service needs to be there, especially when we're praying. And so as we pray for fellow believers, we might be able to write an encouraging email, send an encouraging text or message or Snap or WhatsApp, Befriend a young Christian who's going adrift. Take out a fatherless or motherless child for an outing. Start a Bible study for young Christians. Humbly administer a word of admonition to someone who's doing damage with his speech. Send some free books to a needy pastor, and so on. These and other things should not be done without prayer. On the other hand, praying with Paul will impel us to do some of these things and more. So both in our praying and our immediate service, we will strive to make up what is lacking in someone's faith. So that's Paul's first petition, that God's grace, that by his grace, he might see them so that he can supply what is lacking in their faith. Well, then to faith, Paul adds love. Secondly, he prays that there might be an overflow of love amongst the believers at Thessalonica and South Barwon. Verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Now, considering how little instruction uh, the Christians at Thessalonica received before Paul was forced to leave them, is it not remarkable that this is one of the burdens of Paul's prayer? You see, Paul does not restrict his praying to doctrinal needs, praying only that the believers at Thessalonica may increase in understanding and knowledge and doctrine, theology, but he also prays that their love might overflow for one another. Notice two things about this love. Firstly, I hope you noticed in the text that this love is, first of all, a work of divine grace. Did you see that in verse 12? And may what? you see that there? The Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Genuine godly love is not of a human origin. And even though this verse says, may you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, that is may it have a a practical outworking in your life, the ability and the willingness to love in this way is a gift of God. It is a work of divine grace. In his commentary, Calvin makes a good point. He says, when therefore God marks out our life, He does not look to what we can do, but requires from us what is above our strength, so that we may learn to ask from him the power to accomplish it. So, firstly, it's a work of divine grace in our lives. But secondly, that work of divine grace in us must then overflow into the lives of those around us. Verse 12 again And may the Lord. Make you increase and abound in love for one another and for everyone else. So Paul prays that the Christian's love will increase and grow and overflow for each other. That is for fellow believers in the church and then for everyone else. That's those outside the walls of our church. Therefore, this love that's expressed horizontally to each other is the overflow Of the love and the grace of God that has been lavishly poured into our lives first. The source of the fountain of overflowing love is God. But it doesn't terminate in us, says Paul. It must by its very nature overflow and spill into the lives of those around us. You see, it's the impulse of a fountain to overflow. It originates in the grace of God which overflows freely because it delights to fill the empty and needy. And love shares the nature of that grace because it delights to overflow and reach out and spread out and meet the needs of others around us. And so this love then is the overflow of the love and the grace of God in our lives. It's not duty for duty's sake. It's not right for right's sake. It is not an act of sheer willpower, devoid of any feeling or affection. It's not even an abandoning of our own good or joy or happiness with a view solely to the good and joy and happiness of the other person. But as John Piper writes, he says, Love is firstly a deeply Satisfying experience of the fullness of God's grace, and then a doubly satisfying experience of sharing that grace with another person. It is not first a duty but a delight. It is an overflow of the love of God that has so lavishly been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He's given us. Romans 5 5 is an extension of our experience of God's love that gladly reaches out to meet the needs of others. You see, it's a supernatural love that fills and overflows and spills into the lives of other Christians, unsaved family members, friends, neighbors, workmates, schoolmates, university mates, and whoever we come into contact with. As Piper defines it, Love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. And so we need to compare our praying with that of Paul and ask ourselves, to what extent have we made this petition a passionate interest in our own prayers as we pray for our church? So Paul prays that they will be supplied in faith. There's the doctrinal Then super abundant in love. There's the experiential and practical. And then finally he prays that they might be strengthened in holiness. This is going to be the thing that flavors and colors all of the work that we do. In faith, love, and holiness. Verse 13. May he strengthen your hearts, blameless in holiness, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. You see, when the Bible speaks of the heart, whether in the Old or the New Testament, it's not speaking of the emotional life only, but of the central, animating center of all that we are. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning. It's what we daydream about as we drift off to sleep. It's, it's, our, it's our motivation headquarters. You see, the heart in biblical terms is not just a part of who we are, it's the very center of who we are. Our heart is what defines us and drives us and directs us. This is why Solomon tells us in Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. You see, the heart is a matter of life. It's, it's what makes Each of us, the human being that we are. The heart drives all that we do. The heart is who we are. And when Paul prays that God would establish their hearts, blameless in holiness, he's praying that at the very animating core of our being, he's praying that the very thing that ought to drive what we think, what we say, what we do, The thing that ought to be most true of us is this holiness unto the Lord. And then he adds these sobering words, before our God and Father. Holiness must be lived out, as the Latin phrase puts it, corum Deo, in the presence of God, before the face of God, as the reformers used to say. We need to be clear in our minds that the pursuit of holiness, that is seeking to be holy before a holy God, is no light incidental matter. It is central to the Christian life. Holiness, says Paul, must be lived out, not according to temporal worldly standards, but blameless and holy in the presence of a holy God. This is what Paul prays for. And if we were to live every day conscious of the fact that we are living in the presence of God, we will not need to fear when Christ returns and brings to light everything that is hidden. And it's to this end that Paul prays. Last part of verse 13. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints, Paul wants us to live in holiness before the presence of God and in the light of Christ's coming. In 1994, a celebration was held at Westminster Abbey in London uh, to celebrate the 350th anniversary of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Confession, I hope you've all read. And one of the speakers, a favorite preacher of mine, a Scottish preacher, Eric Alexander, he spoke about uh, how Paul and the early Christians in Rome faced persecution, and difficulty. And he pointed out that it was the hope of their final glorification at the return of Jesus Christ that spurred them on in the face of ongoing hostility, persecution, and suffering. Alexander said, For the Christians in Rome, glorification injected a certainty into their tentative, weak, poor faith. It gave many of them a security. In an absolutely insecure world, where more of us heavenly minded in our living, it would do the same for us. Well, Alexander concluded by remembering the last time he'd been in London. And at that time, uh, Westminster Abbey it was covered in scaffolding all around as workers were cleaning and repairing and beautifying it. One could see its true beauty, he noted, but one was aware that something of great significance was happening behind the scaffolding. Something of majestic beauty was to be revealed. And drawing on this image, he applied it to our lives and to our church in much the same way that Paul prayed to God to cause our awareness of the future return of Christ to spur us onto holiness. He concluded with these words, and I'll conclude with them as well. There will come a day, he said, when God will pull down the scaffolding of world history. And do you know what he will be pointing to when he says to the whole of creation, this is my masterpiece? He'll be pointing to the church of Jesus Christ. In the forefront will be Jesus, the Lord Jesus himself, who will come and say, here am I and the children you have given me perfected in the beauty of holiness. This is the day for which we are laboring, and that day we shall be resurrected. We need to live for that day, the day when God will manifest his glory to his people. If we live for that day, it will change our living and it will change our serving. God grant it as we say, even so, come Lord Jesus, would you join me in prayer? Dearest Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for our prayerlessness. Make us, we pray, to be a praying people, a praying church. Thank you for your grace, which is so evidently at work within us. Make us encouragers of people when we see your grace uh, at work in their lives. Make us a faith-building people, making every effort to supply what is lacking in the faith of others. And we pray that by your Spirit you may cause our love to increase and abound and overflow for each other in this church and for everyone else. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our hearts so that we will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father. When our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all his holy ones. For we pray this in Jesus name. Amen.